right, three, two, one. Mm -hmm. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Data on Kubernetes community. Always excited to be here. We are here for live stream number 128. That's right, we're making killer progress. And speaking of progress, things are coming up quickly. We've got KubeCon on the horizon. You're going to have the full schedule for KubeCon coming out very, very soon. I promise, if not today, tomorrow. And if not tomorrow, very, very soon after that, we're going to be having over 30 talks and panels in one day. So a lot of relevant DOK content. Mark your calendars for May 16th at 9 a.m. Europe time, Central European time. That's uh, about midnight if you're on the West Coast, like our guest today. Um, but like I said, definitely check that out. Before we get started, you know something we've kind of uh, we haven't mentioned as much in some of our in some of our other live streams is our wonderful sponsors. All right, so we've got a very nice group of sponsors here. I just want to give a quick shout out. If you haven't checked them out, you can check them out also on our website. Um, if you want to get to know them better, they're always you know folks are always asking and, and answering questions in our Slack. Massive shout out to our sponsors for all of our all their support. If you're interested in sponsoring, just let us know. We're easy to find. We've got an email for that on the website. Also, you can contact me on Slack. That being said, all right, we are in live stream number 128. We've touched a lot of topics, all right? We've touched a lot of topics, we've talked about databases, we've talked about storage, we've talked about operators, talked about operators a little bit more. We've gone here, we've gone there. Today, we're going to be touching on the topic of Apache Druid, all right? An intro to Apache Druid with none other than my newly acquired friend, uh, Sergio Ferragut, uh, who joins us today from Temecula, California. Sergio, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Very, very good. Very nice to have you with us. So, Sergio, can you tell us a little bit about your job at Imply and how you got in touch with Kubernetes? Well, uh, my job at Imply is a developer advocate. I, uh, I promote the open source project of Apache Druid um, and uh, help people that adopt Apache Druid by, in multiple forums by answering questions and, and getting people to, to actually use it uh, in a performant way. Um, Kubernetes, uh, I've done a little bit of Kubernetes in the past in previous jobs, so, so I had a little bit of experience. So when I got to, uh, here to imply, uh, one of my first tasks was to uh, get the, uh, the, the Helm chart that is part of the project and get it functional and, uh, and you know, uh, test it out and, and then talk about it. And so that's what this uh, presentation is. Perfect. Well, with that being said, folks, as usual, you can ask questions here in YouTube. If we don't have enough time to get all the questions handled, we can take the conversation to Slack. Um, Sergio, that being said, if you want to start sharing your screen, you can go for it. Let me start that out. All right. You should be seeing the uh, presentation at this Perfect. point. All right. Well, again, thank you. Uh, you already did an intro, so I won't introduce myself again, but uh, thank you for having us. Uh, what we're going to talk about uh, today is uh, an overview of what Apache Druid is. So the, the fact that it's a database and uh, what its architecture is and uh, what it's good for. Um, and then we'll go a little bit into uh, an overview of Kubernetes and the Helm charts as uh, you know, just what they are. And then how the Apache Druid uh, project, uh, the Helm chart in the Apache Druid project can be used to deploy and to, and to reconfigure or to upgrade uh, the Apache Druid uh, database uh, in the deployment. So, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about what it doesn't do, right? What, what the Helm chart uh, still doesn't have. And the fact that this is a community project and we're inviting all of you uh, who are developers and uh, want to uh, 
want to improve, test out the database and who want to help us improve it to help uh, jump in and improve the Helm chart. Because particularly in this group, I imagine there's uh, uh, folks who understand uh, Kubernetes and Helm charts better than I do. Um, so we want to invite you to participate. Um, so with that, uh, let's uh, start with what it is, right? Uh, so so uh, Druid is a database. Uh, it's uh, It can scale in and out uh, and up and down in terms of storage, in terms of query capability, and in terms of ingestion throughput. Um, it can bring in data in real time and in batches. It can perform on-demand aggregations and does really speedy uh, ingestion to reduce latency from the occurrence of an event to it being queryable and in analytics. Um, so, so, you know, to give you a better flavor of what, what that produces, right, it, it produces something we call immediate intelligence, right, which is applications such as this one that you're seeing here, and let me click through to get the, the other videos, there should be more videos there, hold on. All good, no worries, perfect. <laughs> there we go. The other so, so you know, these are these are uh, videos of uh, the use of an application that is uh, uh, developed on top of Apache Druid database. Um, these videos are not accelerated at all; they're they're real time videos, and you can see the uh, the speed with which you can slice and dice uh, the data. And this is the the database responding with that speed. So that's what we're doing. Right? We're, we're doing a real time intelligence on events that are coming in with the context of historic data that can allow this kind of uh, interactive experience in analytics. So the the uh, developers, uh, you know, wanted to build this kind of application, the, the original uh, team, engineering team. And uh, so, so they, they tested out a bunch of different technologies in order to build the, that experience, that interactive experience. And they failed with many different uh, uh, databases, but they took uh, certain elements from different kinds of engines to build this new engine. So from the log search uh, uh, software, we took uh, the, the flexible schema, the real-time ingestion, and text search capabilities. From time series databases, we took the, the, uh, the time as the primary display and filtering and grouping dimension, uh, time-based partitioning of the data and storage, uh, time functions, and this ability to do fast ingestion. Um, and from columnar databases, we took the efficient storage uh, format right and the speedy uh, statistical computation resilient data management that uh, can, that we can get out of uh, columnar databases so with with those uh, characteristics uh, they designed a new database uh, that created uh, this this, uh, this this ability that actually works it, it uh, provides ingestion that can scale to millions of events per second uh, pro proven um, the uh, query engine that provides aggregate results with sub-second response times and a data format that is both storage and compute efficient uh, and that can give a unified view of not just real-time uh, data real-time events and analytics but also uh, with the historical context because it, it has both the historical data and the real-time data within the the uh, within its storage and is uh, designed to query all of that time frame all of those time frames uh, with sub-second response times so let's talk a little bit about the architecture now so the the, uh, the database is made up of uh, of a series of microservices 
right, that, are, that we can group logically into three categories. Uh, the first one on the left, query services, provide graphical user interface, uh, REST API into all of the functions that the, the database provides, uh, the uh, query resolution itself, uh, and high availability and scalability of the query services. The data services is where data ingestion occurs uh, for both streaming and batch. Uh, it, there's data indexing going on. This is the building of those columnar data structures uh, that are all indexed and compressed um, that are used then for historical. And again, highly available and scalable. And we'll get into a little more uh, details of how it provides that high availability. Um, and finally, the master services, which are the, the, the controllers, right? That they're uh, controlling the ingestion. They, they distribute tasks to the data services in order to achieve uh, the ingestion. They do data management, which is the distribution of data across the cluster um, and, the, and the high availability of that data within the cluster. Um, and uh, there's a fourth category that's not uh, that's not intrinsically part of the uh, the database services, but it's a dependency, and that's something we call deep storage. Now, deep storage is where you know the, these uh, these columnar segment files that we're building during ingestion. That's where we store them, and it's durable uh, uh, durable storage mechanism, which can be uh, you know distributed file system like HDFS. It can be S3, GCP, or Azure. And it can even be uh, used locally, but that only works if you're doing just a standalone on a, on a laptop. Um, so, you know, you can build from a laptop uh, database that's just uh, running for uh, test and development to a thousand node cluster. Uh, that's the biggest one that I know of um, that, uh, that uh, you know, that's a massive uh, capabilities of ingestion and query. Um, so, Let's talk about the different processes that uh, that are involved in the database, right? The first part is data ingestion, right? And it uses a subset of these services to do uh, data ingestion. There's the uh, the router that where the user submits ingestion requests, the overlord process which manages batch and streaming jobs, and the middle managers that actually do the job in parallel. So, the way this works is the uh, the it starts at the router, the user. Uh, uses either the UI or submits uh, ingestion request through an API. Um, and the router, as its name says, routes the request to the appropriate service, right? The router uh, can route uh, any of the requests to all the, to, across the services of the cluster. In this case, in ingestion, it routes it to the overlord and the overlord takes over the job, uh, defines what tasks need to be executed and distributes the tasks among the middle managers. Um, yeah, that's an all the point. Well, it also, as it distributes the task, it monitors the, ta the, the uh, task so it knows whether when they complete or their progress. And if they fail, it uh, does the restart of a task if it needs to in a different middle manager, if there was a failure in a middle manager or anything like that. So, so it provides resiliency of the, uh, of the ingestion job itself. For streaming, it, uh, it actually enables a special kind of task, which is called a supervisor task, which itself generates tasks in an ongoing fashion to continue the ingestion process from uh, streaming technologies. So, <clears throat> so during ingestion, uh, the middle managers, uh, you know, once they get the tasks assigned by the overlord, the middle managers do what they're told, right? They, they, uh, they consume the data from uh, the data sources, whether it's batch source or a streaming source, um, they create segments. So, so the, their job is to ingest data, create these segment files that are this specialized Apache Druid format uh, that is optimized, uh, partitioned, uh, partitioned in time and potentially partitioned along other dimensions. 
Um, it is a columnar structure that is compressed and indexed. All of the dimensions are automatically indexed. Um, and they, once they complete these segments, they push them into deep storage. And uh, as they are consuming the data in, in real-time streams, they also provide query services. So that's what gives us the real-time access to the data. So you have these middle managers consuming data from streams and as queries come in, and we'll get into the query in a bit, but as, as queries come in, they respond to queries on the data that's, that's being processed to build segments. So we get the real-time aspect of it. And then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the, the, the historical part in a second. Um, the other part of middle managers is that can, they can scale and they can scale pretty dynamically, right? So as the ingestion volume grows, if there's, you know, there's fluctuations in the flow of, uh, of events uh, in a stream, the middle managers can scale. We can add more middle managers and uh, the overlord will assign more tasks to those middle managers uh, to do more, uh, more ingestion in parallel, right? And therefore increasing the ingestion throughput uh, that, that it's capable of. Um, that's good. Next one. Um, so now uh, the data management side. So we've talked about ingestion. There's these middle managers creating segment files and pushing them off to deep storage, publishing them. As the um, that's where the coordinator process comes in. The coordinator recognizes new segments as they're uh, published to deep storage, and it makes decisions about where to distribute them among the historical processes. The historical processes are the ones that will respond to queries on historical segments, on ones that are no longer being processed in real time. Um, so it, it distributes them, uh, not just, uh, as, not just you know, each segment uh, in one historical, but also replicas across different historicals uh, in order to provide high availability and resiliency, such that if you lose a historical, the, the, uh, that same segment of data is available from another historical to continue querying on the querying capability. The, um, so now query processing. So we've talked about ingestion, right? The data coming in either through batch or, or real-time streaming, it produces segments, puts them in deep storage. The coordinator uh, asks the historicals to load segments so that the, the segments are locally uh, uh, available within each historical. And um, so when the query side comes in, the, uh, the router again receives a query request either through the uh, user interface, the graphical user interface, or through a REST API, either in uh, SQL or in uh, JSON uh, native uh, query language that uh, Druid has. Um, it uh, takes the request and routes it to the brokers. There could be many brokers, um, and that provides uh, high concurrent, more high concurrency and uh, more processing power because the brokers are also involved in resolving the queries. Um, so they take the request, they split it up into individual tasks that they need to send either to the middle managers, if it's a real-time portion of, uh, so if it's the, if the time frame of the query is within the real-time portion of the data, or to the corresponding historicals for the time frames that it knows the historicals have. So it uses this metadata about where the data is distributed to send the tasks to the middle managers in the historicals that need to process that query. Each one of them process uh, a part of the query, reading the, the segments that they have locally or in memory, in the case of the middle manager, produce results that are then uh, merged within the broker and where final calculations may occur um, to, to merge or to do group buys and that sort of thing across all of the data that, uh, that's been gathered or all the results that's been gathered from uh, the cluster and then return those results back to the client. Um, so that's the, that's the overview of the three major functions that, uh, that uh, Druid has, its ingestion, its data management, and its query. 
right? So now let's talk a little bit about uh, Kubernetes. I'm going to speed through this a little bit because you know there's a I, I, we don't have that much time, uh, and you guys probably know this uh, more better than I do. But you know this is the story of where we started, right? You know. I don't know, 30 years ago or so or more, uh, we were deploying directly on hardware, right? We had hardware that had a specific operating system and we deployed apps on top of that op operating system uh, and managed all of that manually, which was quite a task. When we went, then we went to virtualized deployment, right? We, we uh, started adding hypervisor on top of the operating system and created uh, virtual machines that themselves had an operating system, had all the binary dependencies of the applications and applications themselves. This helped, this helped a lot because it allowed us uh, much better configuration management. We could create VM images to deploy rather than having to deal directly with the hardware that we had before. Then this evolved further into container deployment, right? Where containers uh, are more lightweight than, than, uh, than VMs, right? The, the, the containers, um, don't have an operating system of, them, uh, of their own. They uh, use the host operating system to deliver operating system functions. So, so they're more lightweight. They only contain the, the binaries uh, that are their own dependencies for uh, specific applications. And this allows us to do uh, easier uh, configuration management and deployment. So what does Kubernetes provide? Uh, Kubernetes provides the management of these containers, the deployment and configuration and, and, and uh, and orchestration is uh, the uh, word that's used normally uh, for what Kubernetes does. Um, so it, uh, you know, it acquires and manages nodes, the, the, the hardware or the VMs that, it, that uh, it's going to run stuff on. Uh, it deploys containers into them and it accepts it, uh, and uh, deploys requests, the re object requests, which is there's many different kinds of objects in Kubernetes that you guys probably know better than I do, but uh, it, it instantiates the uh, containers, it monitors the application status and it, it does so from the perspective of an application or a service, right? So it manages the restartability, the fault tolerance and the upgrade strategy of, uh, of services that are made up of uh, sets of containers or sets of pods. Um, in Apache Druid terms, uh, you can use Kubernetes to deploy multiple clusters of different characteristics. In, in this slide, we have a couple of examples where we have a single node deployment where all of the services are in the single node. And this would be probably a test dev uh, uh, deployment where you know high availability is not important. Or you could have a larger cluster with many nodes uh, that uh, deploy um, services across nodes for high availability and manage those services across nodes to provide a full highly available um, uh, platform uh, for Druid. So why uh, Apache Druid on Kubernetes? Um, so we've sort of been mentioning this, high availability is a big deal. Um, and it provides, because Kubernetes is monitoring and then restarting uh, uh, components as it needs to, it provides uh, recovery. And so it has this monitoring and restart capability of the pods where appropriate. It has functionality like anti-affinity. Uh, this uh, allows us to make sure that uh, if there's a set of pods that provide a given service, you don't ever have two running on the same node because that would, uh, you know, that would be uh, uh, that would cause a, a point of failure if that node fails. That is act that actually, uh, you know, causes. Uh, causes failure of the functionality of querying and so forth. So anti-affinity uh, helps us actually provide high availability uh, and uh, creates a, you know, only a, no single point of failure uh, situation. Uh, 
It also allows us to do scalability, right? You can manage individual components by changing the scale of a component either manually uh, to, to increase the, uh, the capacity of a particular service to, for example, increase the number of historicals or increase the number of middle managers. And it also does so um, automatically in some cases. And it, in the Druid case, the, the auto scaling functionality is really useful for the middle managers in order to uh, in increase and decrease according to the ingestion workload that there is. Um, and we'll talk about how, you know, that, that's probably the only place where we could do auto scaling, but manual scaling we can do anywhere. Uh, it also provides security, it provides encryption of communications, the ingress control and network isolation. Uh, and finally, it manages the upgrades. Uh, so we can uh, do rolling upgrades uh, automatically by creating certain rules within uh, Kubernetes as to how the upgrade process um, evolves. So now let's talk a little bit about Helm charts because uh, we can do, uh, you know, we could deploy on, uh, on directly on Kubernetes by creating these large definitions, uh, you know, these YAML files where we, we define all of the services and all of the elements um, manually, or we can use a Helm chart. A Helm chart provides, um, harnesses this complexity by creating templates for each of the services. And, and we'll talk a, a little bit about how the templates are built for Druid. Um, and it uh, uses a file structure that describes uh, component templates, their parameters, and it provides this uh, single set of parameters from which you can uh, just adjust parameters to <clears throat> deploy very different configurations of, uh, of Apache Druid in this case. Um, it also has uh, dependencies. Uh, in this case, the, the uh, Apache Druid Helm chart uses uh, Zookeeper and it uses a metadata database. Uh, internally, in this case, it deploys either Postgres or uh, MySQL as the metadata database. Um, and it provides again this values uh, that YAML file that has all of the default of the parameters and for which in which you can change the parameters, only the parameters that you need to for for the deployment that you want to do. So, as an example, uh, you can create this uh, this uh, historical with a replica count of ten and the middle manager with a replica count of six, and those are the only two parameters that we can change that, that we can change to deploy a cluster that has six middle managers and ten historicals. As, as the scale of that, uh, of that uh, deployment. Um, it's not as easy as that, but that will work. You, you can generate a, a cluster that is that size with all of the other default parameters. You'll probably wanna change other things as we'll uh, discuss in a moment. So let me move to the next one. So let's uh, dive into the Helm chart, right? And, and what it contains for each of the services. So first, uh, you know, all of the query services, the router, the broker, as well as the master services, like the overlord and the coordinator, uh, use similar uh, configurations uh, in the Helm chart for Kubernetes objects. They include a deployment, uh, which defines the uh, stateless set of pods that will monitor, it will monitor them and keep them running. Um, an ingress, which controls access from outside. In, in that case, the, the only one that really requires uh, access from outside the cluster is the router, because as we've mentioned, the router is the one that distributes uh, requests to all of the other services. Uh, so the router is the one that usually has uh, the ingress enabled. Um, <clears throat> all of the other services can keep the ingress uh, disabled because all of the other communication is internal. Um, so, so the, and finally, the service definition that declares and manages a set of pods as a logical network service. 
So now to the middle managers. Uh, in the middle managers, uh, the template defines a stateful set, uh, which is different than a deployment, in that the, um, the middle managers hold intermediate processing uh, files locally. So uh, that makes it uh, stateful. And therefore, when it restarts, uh, we want it to come back with uh, that, that, uh, that storage in place. If the storage itself fails for some reason, it can come back and, and rebuild from scratch its tasks, but uh, having it come back with the with the, its intermediate uh, files in place allows us to pick up uh, the jobs where they left off. Um, so it also defines uh, a pod disruption budget. Uh, this this is uh, how we upgrade. Uh, so what is essentially defines is how many pods can be offline uh, while we're doing the upgrade. In the case of Druid, it's it depends on how much. Uh, how many replicas you've used, uh, but typically you're using, uh, and, and what I'm sorry, replicas of the uh, tasks, replicas of the segments um, in the cluster. Typically it's two. So that means we can only uh, lose one pod at a time during an upgrade process. You could increase that to three and, and you know you could lose two at a time uh, during the upgrade, but normally it's configured with two replicas and uh, one pod down uh, at a time for upgrade. Um, the service, again, defines the, the set of pods as a logical group. So the middle managers define a service. Um, and it, because it's a, as a service, it has you know, a logical uh, network uh, identity and a port that's uh, consistent uh, that we can communicate with. And uh, finally, the horizontal pod autoscaler, the HPA, um, which can be enabled to control autoscaling of the middle managers, right? Where you define a minimum number of, uh, of pods for that service, maximum number of pods, and then you define uh, metrics and thresholds that uh, will trigger the increase or the decrease of, uh, of the number of uh, uh, the replica count of this service, and therefore allow it to grow and, and decrease as the uh, workload changes. The historicals <clears throat> also use a stateful set. Um, and th this is where the, the uh, Kubernetes actually provides uh, very quick uh, recovery times, right? Because, and recovery points. Um, because remember, the historicals are loading uh, from deep storage. They're taking uh, segments that are, all, that, are, uh, that, that, are, that are immutable, right? And loading them into their local, uh, what's called their local cache, essentially their local storage. Uh, which is usually SSDs for if you want to uh, have it be faster, you can have different historical tiers that are you know faster or slower, but we, we won't get into the tiers uh, for now. Um, so the historical keeps uh, copies of the segment files locally, right? And so upon a restart, if a historical fails, if during the restart they have the files, then they don't need to do anything anything else. They just they're back in service almost immediately. Um, the, the pod disruption budget, same as the middle manager, control it one at a time. Again, it depends on, on the replicas of the data source. So if their segments are replicated twice, you can lose uh, one uh, historical at a time to do the upgrade. Um, segments are loaded and unloaded from local storage as the historical. So, so if you're scaling it up or scaling, or scaling it down, when you scale it up, the coordinator recognizes uh, the new historicals and decides to do a redistribution of, uh, of uh, the segment files and therefore unload some of the, uh, the, the segment files from the existing historicals and loads them into, uh, into the new historicals and therefore increases the uh, query capability of the historical layer. Um, that, that process of redistribution does take some time. 
So this is so this is why we don't recommend uh, using the the uh, HPA uh, in this case uh, because we don't want it to scale automatically. If it's scaling up and down automatically, there's going to be a, a lot of overhead of of redistributing the segments. You probably don't want to be occurring in an automatic fashion. So scaling historicals is probably better done manually. Um, so let's walk through an example. Uh, we if we the first thing we need to do is set the Kubernetes context, right? Uh, I've been experimenting with Minikube, doing it on the laptop. I'll actually share a, a link at the end uh, to, to a blog post where we'll go through from scratch into how to uh, build a Minikube uh, uh, Apache Druid uh, deployment on, uh, on your laptop, on a Mac. Um, and uh, anyway, so you set the Kubernetes context uh, either you know on Minikube or Amazon EKS or Google GKE uh, or Azure AKS or any Kubernetes cluster uh, deployment, right? The um, you then you clone you know from scratch you clone the Apache Druid repo um, and then uh, run the Helm uh, dependency update. What this does is it downloads the Helm charts for Zookeeper, Postgres and MySQL so that you can deploy them uh, um, from, uh, from your, from your uh, Kubernetes context. Um, and, uh, the, the, and finally, the, uh, the last command, the Helm install, will actually install and deploy a, a whole Kubernetes cluster within, the, uh, I'm sorry, a whole Apache Druid cluster within the, uh, the, the Kubernetes context. Um, so that's the simplest uh, model where you get, uh, you know, three zookeepers for quorum. Uh, you get uh, one historical, one middle manager, one broker, and one, uh, uh, one master service that's a combined coordinator um, and overlord. So th that's the, the simplest configuration. And uh, from there, you can change parameters to make, it, uh, to make it bigger. So let's take a look at an example of how you would manually uh, use the Helm chart to, to update or to change the uh, deployment of this particular uh, Apache Druid deployment. So uh, the, the best practice is, well, you, you make the change that you want. So at, at the top there, we see a, a simple uh, values uh, file that's only changing the historical replica count to two. So we started with one, we're going to two. By using a Helm diff uh, upgrade command, we can see what the change is. And it's a good practice to do this before you actually deploy it, but to see what you're changing from the, uh, the, the already deployed cluster. So here it shows us that it was replica count one and it's going to replica count two. Um, once you do that uh, and, and do the Helm upgrade command, that will reconfigure the clusters. It tells Kubernetes, okay, take historicals from one to two, and it, it will do that. We see here in the in the uh, get pods command that we that we've added. Uh, you know, we had historical zero, we added historical one, and I caught it right right as as I uh, at, after the upgrade command. So it's not yet ready, but it becomes ready within the. Within a few seconds, actually, and then the coordinator starts its distribute its redistribution of the um, of the segments across the two uh, the two historicals now. So let's get into the you know, the Helm chart and the different parameters that uh, that are needed to deploy this. Um, so for uh, for deep storage, let me get the first animation there. Uh, so for deep storage, we need to define the storage type. Like we said, we need to figure out whether it's going to be S3 or HDFS. Um, and, uh, and, and this is any S3 compatible uh, environment, actually in the, in the local deployment, we're using MinIO uh, to deploy and you configure it as S3. 
Uh, and you know, there's a series of parameters uh, that are needed depending on which deep storage you're using, things like you know the access key to access S3 and, and so forth. And this link that I provide here, it gives you all of the details of what those parameters are. Um, the, then the uh, metadata database also needs to be configured, right? By default, it'll use a, a Postgres instance, but you can define uh, something different uh, for that metadata database if you have some other uh, uh, database that you want to use that's not necessarily that instance of it. Um, so the Helm chart uh, provides either Postgres SQL or MySQL. Um, but, uh, you know, there's one thing here that's missing uh, from a high availability perspective, and this is one of those things that, that we probably need to improve from the Helm chart, and that is that the metadata databases that it's deploying are not highly available themselves. So because of that, there's, there is a, a, a point of failure here that still needs to be uh, improved on. So uh, let me see, my animations are messed up there, so let me go to the next one. Um, now. Within all of the other microservices, right? Uh, there's there's a there's a section of uh, within the 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 YAML the values that YAML file that defines for each service what the resources are, and this becomes important in larger uh, larger deployments where you want to provide uh, more CPU and more memory to each of the uh, pods that make up the middle managers or that make up the brokers or that make up the historical. So it's, it's important to look at these, uh, at the resource requests and at the limits that you're assigning to each of the services, you know, according to the, uh, to the set of uh, nodes that you have and the capabilities in terms of uh, resources, CPU and memory that's, that, that are available. But this is definitely something that needs to be adjusted uh, when, when you're uh, deploying a larger, um, a larger uh, cluster. And uh, a very good resource for figuring out uh, what, uh, you know, how much CPU, how much memory you want to assign to each one is this uh, link that I provide here, the basic cluster tuning that's part of the Apache uh, Druid documentation. Um, it provides a lot of details as to how you want to configure it, how many you want to configure. So if more gives you parallelism and gives you high availability, but each one needs to have certain amount of CPU and memory to efficiently do uh, their jobs. Um, <clears throat> so let's take a look at it from a data processing perspective again. So each of the processes that we talked about, right? So, so from a data ingestion perspective, you, you, we want the, the router uh, to also be highly available, right? So it, if it fails, we want another one available to, to, uh, to provide that same function. Um, so, so we probably want a replica count of two in, uh, in the router at a minimum. Um, and this is where we do want to enable the ingress. So those are, you know, primary parameters that need to be changed in a, in a larger cluster. Now, in the uh, in the overlord and the coordinator, you also want a replica count of two because these are the master uh, controlling services that that, that handle uh, the, the ingestion jobs and the data management jobs. So you want them to be highly available as well. So a replica count of two on those two is uh, highly desirable as well. On the middle managers, um, the, the parameters are, again, the replica count, you know, a minimum of two for high availability, but you really want more, right? Uh, well, it depends on your workload. If it's just a test environment, then, you know, two is probably enough. But, uh, but anyway, this is where you, where you manage the scale of the uh, ingestion capability and of the uh, real-time query capability. You'll want to set the anti-affinity in, in order to avoid two middle managers being on the same uh, physical node. Um, and you could also uh, use the node selector. So if you have different kinds of nodes uh, to, to, for different uh, services, you can direct the middle managers to you know, 
potentially the more powerful nodes where there's more CPU and more memory, because this is where this is one of the real workhorses of the uh, of the Druid implementation. Um, uh, let me see what else. Okay, the uh, so during data ingestion, right? There's uh, it's not just uh, having uh, multiple middle managers for failover capabilities, but it's also so that the 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 flow of data itself is not uh, interrupted. Right, so, so you can use uh, within a, an ingestion job, let's uh, talk about the real-time ingestion job in this case, you'll want to have replicas of the tasks themselves. So this is uh, the same task, uh, you know, the one that's, uh, let's say, consuming from a Kafka topic or consuming from a subset of partitions of a Kafka topic. Um, you want each task to have a replica of the task, and it's two tasks doing the same work. Um, they're ingesting the same events and they're uh, producing the same segment files, such that if there's a failure of one of the uh, middle managers for any reason, the other one continues to work and continues to uh, provide that uh, that real time query capability on the data as it's uh, as it's coming in, and you don't have interruptions and have to restart the, a particular set of uh, uh, of events uh, to reprocess. It will restart that if uh, if you don't use a replica count, so it will restart from wherever it started before to build a segment. Um, but because there's a real time query capability going on here. What if you don't have the replicas, what that would cause is if you have just a single task doing the ingestion and it fails, it'll restart from the beginning and any queries that are coming in that might have, you know, been further along a few minutes ago and reported a sum or, or an average or whatever a metric that was higher uh, because it had already processed a, a bunch of events, it might go back to less events because it's reprocessing and therefore provide results that are that, that seem to go up and down. So by having uh, um, replica tasks, you avoid that problem and provide real uh, high availability to the ingestion process. Um, as the task, if you have the two tasks doing the same thing, you obviously don't want the results from both. Uh, the the uh, overlord automatically takes care of that as, and as one finishes and completes and publishes uh, its segment, it uh, stops the other task that, that was the replica uh, doing the same work. Um, so anyway, that's sort, of, that's sort of how it provides the high availability of ingestion. Um, so the, uh, I sort of already talked about the ingestion capacity, but uh, uh, so, so the uh, scaling the ingestion capacity. Okay, so scaling it can be done manually, right? So, so you just increase the replica count of uh, of the middle managers to increase the uh, it, both its throughput and its, uh, uh, its ingestion throughput and its query capability and its concurrency uh, for more queries um, <clears throat> on the real time aspect of it in a in a static way or like we said before, you can use the uh, the the auto scaling capability, which is enabled within the the uh, a few set of parameters in the in the values.yaml. Um, you just enable the auto scaling, define minimum and maximum replicas, so the, and uh, define the metrics and the thresholds that are used to either increase uh, the replica count or decrease the replica count based on the current workload. Um, on the historicals, again, we will want uh, two minimum for fault tolerance. Uh, you also want to use a node selector uh, to 
choose the specific uh, uh, nodes on which you want historicals to run. Um, you'll want to use anti-affinity again so that if the node fails, you don't, uh, you don't actually have a failure. You, there's another historical to take over. Um, and now when you scale up, right? So if you increase the, the replica count, uh, the coordinator will recognize the new historicals, redistribute the segments, uh, unloading the segments from one historical and loading it into others. Um, the historicals are deployed as a stateful set. Um, so this means that uh, you know, the, the, the naming of the historical persists and the storage persists. And this is one of the huge advantages of putting uh, Druid on Kubernetes um, because because of this, there's no need to reload segments, right? Uh, if you didn't have this capability, you say you lose a node and there's no persistent storage on it, and you bring back another node with the, the historical, it'll have to re-retrieve all of the segments that it had from deep storage. And it does that and, and, and that works, but that creates a larger delay in uh, the recovery capability. So from this perspective, you know, the, the uh, Kubernetes uh, uh, capabilities of a stateful set is, is a huge advantage for, for the Apache Druid database. Um, on the broker side, so brokers, uh, like I said, are, yes, you want uh, more than one for fault tolerance, but there's also scale, right? And, and there's a two scale, uh, you, you want to scale them up enough uh, to deal with uh, individual queries that they may have. So this uh, requires you know, more threads for more, uh, for more concurrency. It requires uh, more processing buffers uh, to do merge operations of the results and, and enable higher concurrency just by having a, a more resources. Now, scaling out is also very useful by increasing the replica count, um, again, for higher concurrency, but also for high availability and an ability to direct traffic. So you can create rules um, that uh, send different kinds of requests to different brokers. And so you can create sort of fast lanes for uh, faster queries uh, and potentially slower lanes for, for more har harder workloads. Um, so it allows you to do that kind of uh, query leaning. Um, so let's talk about possible failure scenarios during uh, during the uh, during query capability during a, a query processing, right? So if you're processing a query and a middle manager is lost, um, the rep, like I said before, the replica tasks keep the real time queries consistent. So you want to have a replica task upon recovery of a middle manager, it'll be assigned tasks and continue working um, uh, by picking up where it left off and uh, just uh, continuing its, uh, its ingestion and its query capabilities. If a historical is lost, uh, the it, because you've set replica count of the data segments to two, the replicas are available in different historical. So if it's halfway through a processing a piece of a query and it fails, the broker recognizes that and resubmits that, uh, that, that particular task to the other historical that has the same data. Um, upon recovery, uh, like we said, the, the historicals recover really fast with Kubernetes because they have uh, the, the uh, segment cache already populated uh, locally and therefore can pick up right where they left off and start receiving uh, more queries when they come back, back online. Um, if a broker is lost, the query that was submitted will need to be resubmitted because it was in charge of that particular query. Um, but recovery is fast uh, because the persistent storage, uh, uh, sorry, this is the wrong, uh, wrong point. Um, the, the, uh, another broker will take the request, right? If, uh, while that broker comes back. But the other thing about Kubernetes is it will, will, it will bring that broker back. So, you know, your, your query uh, 
throughput capability, your concurrency capability will be recovered fairly quickly. Um, so even if local storage, I, I probably already mentioned this, but if local storage is lost within a historical, if there's a, a failure in the storage, um, the queries will continue with the other replicas. And as a new, uh, the new historical is brought back and given new storage, it will then re-retrieve re the segments that, uh, that were assigned to it from deep storage and recover from there. In the meantime, there's other historicals taking care of those, uh, of those queries. So summarizing, um, the uh, Apache Druid is a real-time OLAP database to produce the kind of, uh, of applications that I sh uh, showed you an example of. Um, Kubernetes gives it the increased availability by monitoring it, by doing auto recovery and providing persistent storage. This gives us better recovery times and better uh, recovery points. Um, and uh, it auto uh, it auto scales the uh, ingestion components uh, and the real-time query capability um, based on uh, on the workload. And uh, the Helm install the Helm install makes it really easy, right? So once you've uh, defined uh, the set of uh, parameters that you want for a particular kind of deployment, you can save that as a values file. Like the few examples I have here, like a dev with a min cluster, a QA with HA enabled, and maybe a production uh, cluster that has not just HA enabled, but the auto scaling capability enabled. And deploying a new one is really just a Helm install with this values file and off you go. So what doesn't it do yet, right? The, the Helm chart uh, doesn't have uh, all of the capabilities of the Apache Druid uh, database enabled at this point. And one of those things is metrics. So, so the, the, the database is fully instrumented and you can enable metrics for each of the services that provide all sorts of detailed metrics at the query level, at the segment level, at information about CPU utilization, memory utilization, all of the resources are, are monitored and reported on on a continuous basis when you enable metrics. This is really useful for understanding your workload, understanding how your workload is evolving, where it's hitting problems, where you may need to change the configuration and, uh, and do a home upgrade uh, to, to provide uh, the additional resources that you need or maybe reduce the resources if, if uh, you're using too many and you don't need that much. Um, so metrics is something that, that we would like to add to the, uh, to the Helm chart. Um, a multi-tier configuration. So this is the ability to do the historicals can be uh, configured on different nodes. So you can have a set of historicals that may be on really fast, uh, lots of CPU, lots of memory, and all SSDs uh, to, to provide uh, maybe the uh, time frame for the last week. Or, uh, so it's time-based, right? So you may have those, uh, the, the last week of data in the really fast uh, hardware, and then have older data migrate to slower hardware, or you might have, you know, maybe less memory, less CPU, less uh, hard drives instead of SSDs, uh, that you know, gives you a, a, uh, the price performance combination that, 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 uh, that you want. Um, so <laughs> the multi-tier configuration of uh, the Apache Druid is not a part of the Helm chart at this point. So that's an improvement that, the, that we're looking uh, for the community to build. And finally, you know, th th this is a community and uh, it's an active open source project with lots of uh, uh, engineers working on it from uh, lots of different organizations. Um, and we want more, we want, we want this community to grow. Right? We want the, the, the project to become even more active. So given that you, uh, you guys are all Kubernetes uh, knowledgeable, I want to invite all of you to, uh, to test it out, you know, fork the repo, uh, 
make changes to the Helm chart, add some functionality to the Helm chart and submit a PR. We're reviewing PRs and, uh, and, uh, and merging PRs almost continuously. So with that, uh, I'll, I'll leave you with uh, uh, you know, a lot of different ways of communicating with us. You know, there's email, there's uh, the Druid user forum, there's Slack, there's meetups like this one. Um, there's a training program uh, that for now is completely free. So I invite you to go to learn.imply.io and, and learn more about the basics. There's a Druid basics course that just walks you through the basics of how to ingest data, uh, transform it, and query it. Um, there's a, uh, and, and there's a more advanced course on modeling and ingestion that takes it further in terms of how you need to, to model uh, your data to make it really performant and, uh, and deliver the kind of uh, interactive experience that, the, that we showed in those videos. Um, so go to, go to the training site and, uh, and take advantage of uh, what is currently free courses. Um, and there's the Druid Professionals Group, the uh, news uh, uh, news on Twitter. Uh, you can, uh, you know, if you follow us on Twitter, you'll see uh, new blog posts and new new information that we have all the time uh, about events and about uh, how Druid is evolving. Um, so with that, I'll uh, open it up to questions. Very, very good. Very, I mean, superb presentation. As I said when we got started, you know, we've had. 128 live streams and few have been as fluid and as well organized as this one. Just really, really nicely put together in terms of the logic Thank behind you. everything. One question that someone was asking me on Slack is, you know, is as someone with, his, with, with a fair amount of experience, such as yourself, and we're talking about cloud native, et cetera, et cetera. When first approaching this, you know, in your personal experience, like you, you showed us, you know, how, how to get, um, how to get Druid on Kubernetes. What was the trickiest part for you though? And like, if you had to do it all over again, what might be some resources that you might recommend or things that in, in my case, I wish I'd known a little bit more about this or about that or things oh. that folks should watch out for. I spent a lot of time uh, trying to uh, figure out the ingress side of it, uh, but you know that's my inexperience with Kubernetes <laughs> more than more than anything else. And uh, I, I uh, suddenly realized I could just use the uh, kubectl port forward to enable it. <laughs> for in my case, so I'll, I'll, let me uh, find the, the link. I'll share the blog post where I go through actually deploying. Oh, perfect! Uh, yeah, 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 definitely on, find that on the uh, on the laptop. Uh, I want to follow it up with another uh, blog post where we're deploying a larger uh, cluster on uh, on AWS or on one of the cloud services. Uh, so that, you know that's where I assume I'm going to get into a little more trouble. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, like you said, that's good. And the thing is, because Kubernetes presents different things that that perhaps aren't as familiar, such as ingress, um, and and also for some people getting used to Helm charts and YAML, like there's a whole stack of things to to, yeah. be, to be dealing with. Um, so yeah, no, if you, if you can, if you can share the link to that, that'd be really, really good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me uh, find it and I'll share here uh, in the chat in a second. Um, yeah. And then another question is, is regarding standardization of practice. Like you mentioned, you know, some of the, the things that are going on in the Apache Druid community, very exciting stuff there with different contributions that are making these things easier. Having seen other technologies go through the process of standardization of practice. Oh, good. I got the link right here. Um, what are things that you think that you know, us as a community or things that you're noticing that will help what we often talk about for data on Kubernetes to become more boring and in the sense of not so, uh, not, 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 not as overwhelming as it might be for some people and have a more sort of like, this is a straightforward approach. This is how it's done. Well, you know, like I said, I'm no 
big expert on Kubernetes, but uh, what I found is that uh, the Helm chart was just a, a godsend, right? It was it was very easy uh, to take the Helm chart and just to you know figure out which parameters I wanted to change to deploy a whole a, a whole cluster. So from that perspective, that that was uh, enlightening to me. The Helm charts were new to me at that point. Um, they're still kind of new to me. Uh, so so the Helm chart was uh, something that I found was uh, phenomenal. The, the, these like I said, the, the abilities of uh, Kubernetes to provide higher availability than the database by itself could, could uh, provide uh, was also, uh, I think, a huge, uh, a, a, a huge benefit to, in my mind, to, to deploying on Kubernetes rather than, um, than uh, you know, than on some other structure directly on EC2 or directly on, on hardware. Got it. Got it. No, very, very good. Another question that we got from, from the audience um, from Renato is, what's your opinion about using the Helm versus Druid operator? Um, I not much opinion in my in my mind because I know of the Druid operator. I have not uh, experimented with it. That's also another uh, another task that I, that I want to take on, right? To figure out, you know, under which situations the Druid operator might be better. Actually, you guys may be able to tell me <laughs> which ones, uh, uh, which one would naturally be better. I, uh, you know, from a from a newbie's perspective, uh, the Helm chart seemed easier as a as a, an initial uh, point for me. I don't know that the Druid operator, I assume, has more functionality, right? Because there's there's a there there's a functions that the operator itself provides as far as I can understand it. I, I'm not, again, no expert. That's okay. And, you know, when it comes to operators, it's a common topic that comes up a lot because yeah. with uh, without having more standardized practices or deeper integrations with Kubernetes, operators for right now kind of seem like the best option we've got. And so, like I said, that's, that is a frequent uh, topic of conversation. Um, Renato, I invite you to come into our Slack. We've got plenty of other people that would be happy to take that. Talk further. about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, got another comment. Just, uh, they love, love the, love your presentation and very well configured explanations. So yeah, great feedback there. I think that's, um, if, you know, I'll just give folks a little bit more time to, to, to drop their questions in there, but Sergio, if you can stop sharing your screen, your screen really quickly Absolutely. Um, so I can share mine. Perfect. Good. So while you're talking, uh, tradition that we have, in the data on Kubernetes community, I think we started this in probably live stream number 10, if I have to go way back when to the ancient times of 2020. Um, I will, it seems like it's been 50 years, but we have an amazing artist, um, Angel, who's in, in the background doing a graphic recording of all the stuff that you're talking about. Um, so we have Boy. that right here. It's sort of a unique thing that we do, but it's, it's a nice way to compile all the different things that we're talked about as you covered a lot of grounds, you covered a ton of ground in a short period of time. Um, so very, very well done there. Um, like I said, I think, you know, it's very clear if, if folks want to check out, you know, Druid more, get in the community uh, and you already know somebody through Sergio. So if you need a little bit of help here or there, you know, you know who to go to. And I, I really, I, like I said, I haven't seen very many presentations that have been as thorough and easy to follow. So we have a very grateful audience. You're getting more shout outs um, to you as well, too, for the amazing presentation. Awesome. Yeah. Um, that being said, we've got you in our Slack. If anybody has any additional questions, we're happy to continue the conversation there. Absolutely. And I hope to see you in the Bay Area in July when I'll be back. We're doing more uh, in-person meetups, folks. If you're in London, if you're in Bangalore, if you're in Istanbul, um, we're going to start opening these up more in more countries. I'll be doing one in Spain at some point as well, too. 
And anyway, Sergio, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. All right. Take care, everybody. Cheers.